good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua. Since we looked at about five chapters last week, we did so good, I figured we'd try to cover a little bit more today. And uh, no, we're just going to give an overview. As a matter of fact, you should have two things with you. One is your sermon notes that will help you keep track. But there's also a map that if you didn't get, it's back there on that round table. You won't bother me at all to get up and go get you one. It's just to help us understand what we're looking at today is the allotments of the land that was promised to God's people. And I think this would just sort of help you get a sort of a point of reference because we're going to skim over these things pretty fast. And so if you have your Bibles open now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as, as we've already said, Lord, that none of us uh, come in here uh, empty-handed. Uh, Lord, all of us have something that we are carrying, uh, maybe a question that's not answered or an answer that we, don't want, that we didn't want. And uh, Lord, as we think about it, those watching online, uh, Lord, if, uh, many of them would like to be here if they, if they, were, if they could. And so, Lord, we, we all have something that we are in need of rest today, be that physical or spiritual or emotional or psychological, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, we in honesty simply come to you as our Father, our Abba, and, and lay those things before you honestly. And uh, Lord, we do it with our faith oriented towards you, with our Bibles open. You are our only hope. And the gospel is all we have to bring us to a point of rest today. Because you do not promise us to change our situation. You promise to give us rest in the midst of it. And so, Lord, we need you. And so we as your people have gathered ourselves together. This is our shallow. To worship you and to honor you and to treasure you. So speak to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's sort of recall where we've been. This is a new generation of people. The old generation, save two, are gone. This is the new generation of Israel, ones that are having to answer the same question. Do you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you enter into this rest that I have provided for you? There's been a preparation. And we learned that preparation in this life is painful, yet it's purposeful. Because the war that we fight is inescapable. It, is, it manifests itself both spiritually and temporally in this life. And if that's true, then this war brings two realities, fighting and failure. So we talked about the goal is progress into Christ-like conformity, not some legalistic perfectionism. But amid the battle, we have to know some things. The outcome is sure. The victory is promised. We are heading towards a place. And the rest has already been provided. Both now and forever. One book I liked that helpful, if I ever study, when I begin to preach through a book of the Bible, Mark Dever has written two books, one for the old and one for the new. His title of his one book is Promises Made. The other is Promises Kept. And you can guarantee if when I go to another book, I usually pull that out and read that. 
It's, it's focused on what the point of the Bible is, that when God makes promises, he keeps those promises. And so today, the context, God has made some promises. So Genesis 12, there has been actual land promised to God's people. Abraham, so Genesis 12, let's back up to verse 6. It says, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. He, he repeats this in Genesis 26 to Isaac, and then to Jacob in Genesis 28. Not only promising it to them, but to the generations that come after them. To some degree, brothers and sisters, the whole Pentateuch is pointing towards this moment. When God would keep the promises that he's made. Abraham believed it. But he did not see it. But this generation would. A promised land is graciously given. If you talk to anyone that's been in a, in a wartime environment. That, has, that had to live their life in a constant state of an enemy is there. And he's coming and they always have to be prepared. And they always have to be facing it. When they come home. It's hard to transition. It's hard to go from being a constant state of war to simply settling into civilian life, to what it looks like to keep your home up and to cut your grass and to do all these somewhat trivial but necessary things. This is where these people are. They have seen in the conquest much destruction. Now they need to embrace construction, except for one thing. They don't have to build houses they don't have to plant vineyards. They don't even have to build their cities. God has already provided all of that. But they had to settle it. This will be easier said than done. Because you see, a warrior never stops being a warrior. You never get to take your armor off. And some of you might have settled into it. You got your armor hung up in the closet. Uh, these people were going to have to war. And the fact that they thought they could hung, hang their armor up in the closet would lead to much problems in their future. But right now, they are at the brink of this land. The, the conquest has been made, and if you, you got your map, you can begin to see all of these tribes. It's important to understand, to start with, the land that was allotted in Gilgal. Gilgal. If you remember, yeah, I, I didn't print off a detailed enough map, but if you remember, Gilgal is near Jericho crossed over the Jordan. You see the Jordan there on your map? Right after they crossed over the Jordan, Jericho was right there. And Gilgal was their base camp. It was, it was where everybody was. They, they, their women and their children were there. It was their place that's most importantly, and this is critical to understanding what's going on and some of what I want, to, want us to focus on. That was where the ark was. And remember why the ark was important. The ark symbolized the very presence of God among his people. And so this was where the allotments would happen. Gilgal was inside of Manasseh's tribe allotment, down in that little foot that sort of sticks down in the bottom. And so, just if you're interested, this is, I always thought this was always interested to me, Joshua is probably somewhere between 90 and 100 years old right now. He's going to live, according to chapter 14, to, uh, to 110. I mean, chapter 24. Chapter 14 
tells us that Caleb is 85. So these guys are not spring chickens. But they're still doing what God has taught. Their armor is not in a closet. They are not retired. They're responsible. And so we, what we see to start with is some excited tribes. These tribes are ready. This is the land, sours, God's given it to us, they're ready. So chapter 14, look at chapter 14 and verse 1. These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an, an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan. But to the Levites he gave no inheritance. So what I want you to see to start with, there was a God-given system to allot this land. Eliezer was a high priest, along with Joshua, and one representative from each tribe would come together. They would cast lots before the Lord. That was their way of letting the Lord determine His will. But keep in mind, this allotment did not include the Transjordan tribes. That's the tribes that if you look on your map, Reuben, Gad, and half, the half-tribe of Manasseh. These have already been given land. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It also didn't include the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi in chapter 13 and verse 14 this is repeated over and over throughout this book. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offering by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance. And, and so Levi, their inheritance was the Lord. They get to serve him. They get to offer the sacrifices and lead God's people in worship. And so the first person we see come to the surface in this allotment was Caleb. Caleb was part of the tribe of Judah, but he's the first one that gets his special allotment. Uh, look at verse 6 of chapter 14. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the, Ken the Kenizzite, that's important by the way, your growth group's going to talk about that, said to him, you know the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, and Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. And, and so what Caleb does with Joshua is recounts their faithfulness. The fact that they were faithful. They were the only, remember, they're the only two that's left. Everybody else of that generation died because these were the spies who came back from the land that said, God has given it to us, we can take it. And so here he is, some 40 years later, now an old man just as strong and faithful and zealous and passionate than he ever was. Uh, look at verse 10, chapter 14. Caleb talking. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. This is an important theme. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. Verse 11. I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses that Moses sent me. My strength now is my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country to which the Lord 
spoke on that day. For you heard and now how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out. Just as the Lord said. If you want to know the secret to a successful, faithful life, it is to trust in the promises of God. What he said is what he's going to do. He's an old man. He's not done. He put his armor up. Notice it. Then we see Judah. Now, if you look on your map, you'll see Judah gets the largest piece of land. You see it? It's a huge. He had more land than they could even use. And remember, in the Bible, we're always following the seed. Who's got the seed? Remember, the seed's a capital S, Galatians, the seed is Christ. Who carries the seed? The tribe of Judah carries the seed. It's interesting, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to see it on your map. Notice Simeon is right smack in the middle of Judah's land. When Jacob was dying, he prayed over his sons. This is Genesis 49. Speaking of Levi and Simeon, he says this, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. He will divide Simeon and he will scatter Levi. Why? That's what he said he was going to do. Prayed it through the prayer of Jacob. And that's exactly what we see, Simeon. His land was divided in Judah. Uh, What's important if you open your Bibles and you turn to to, uh, Joshua 15 is that this, what this chapter is, why it's so important to the Jewish people and, and to Israel, and it should be to us, is this is the title deed of their land. Now, if you ever bought a piece of property, it sounds something like beginning at the At the stake here, we travel so many hundred feet north to the boundary stake here, and then they turn southward so many feet. That's what it does. It marks off your property. And you get a surveyor out there, and they stake your lines so you know the extent of your property. That's what he's doing here. There again, let me just read this to you. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18 says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's in Genesis. In Joshua 15, he maps out that land. And gives it to his people. This is the continual motif. Promises made, promises kept. And then what we see in chapters 18 and 19 is they move to Shiloh. Shiloh. And then they need lots more land. We see that in chapter 18 verses 1 to 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. And the land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. Verse 3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? And so what we see here in Shiloh 
is some reluctant tribes. You see what he's saying? They're putting off going and settling the land that God has given them. Shiloh would be important. They would move the Ark of the Covenant to Shiloh. That's in Ephraim, if you look at your map. It's more central. It moves to a more central location. The point is so that all of God's people would know this is the place where the presence of God is amongst our midst. This is where we would come and worship and offer their sacrifices. The Ark would stay there until David would move it into Jerusalem. It was central. It was important. But he also had to do something else. He initiated a new system of allotment. The reason he did this was to motivate these reluctant tribes to get excited about the land. He just sort of got content living in tents. And so he, he got three representatives from the, left, from the seven tribes that wasn't allotted. And they went out and basically they did the surveying. Right? So he said, y'all are going to go out, y'all are going to set the stakes, you're going to drive out, you're going to lay the extent of it. In order to get them excited about this land, he got them to survey it, and then he cast lots and allotted it. And, uh, here's the question. A lot we could look at in all these different tribes and all these different things. Why did he do it that way? Why did God allot the tribes the way he did with Casting lots. Well, the first reason is to avoid tribal infighting because of jealousy. (laughs) And this almost works, except we'll talk about that in a little bit. The land was equally divided to teach this principle in the Bible. That it's not by human will that things happen. It is because of God's sovereign election. That's what it points to. It's a point to this, God gets to choose. It is the central theme, it runs through the Bible. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The land was allotted by how God wanted it allotted, and he got to choose who got what. So no one could say to Joshua or to, to the elders, this is not fair. But we'll see. They, they actually can do that. It is to recognize this. God is the sovereign owner of everything. He owns the land. He owns your house. Your children belong to Him. And your life belongs to Him. Whenever, if you ever come down to our house, there's a little rental house right to the right as you come down the driveway. It was the old homestead. It's been there for years. And we've always used it as rental property. And when I, when I met my wife, there was another guy living there. And when we got engaged, my dad told the guy living in that house, uh, you got to leave. And so he gave him 90 days or so, and he found another place to leave, and he, and he left. And somebody might say, well, well, that's not fair. That's the American sensibility coming. But you see, this was my dad's house. He owned it. And he could give it to whoever he pleased. And he pleased to give it to me. This is a greater reality in Canaan. That Canaanite land was God's land. It was his land. He had already promised it. And it was his to give to whom he pleased. And he pleased to give it to Israel. 
But it was their responsibility to settle it. So all the land is allotted. All this that you see on your map now. When we get to chapter 20, it says this. He set up cities of refuge. Chapter 20, verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. And there shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So what's going on here is that murder and killing is still happening. And and P.S., by the way, uh, for people who love to study end times, this this is just something to think about. If your consummation of the kingdom of the end times has sinners and threat of war, you had not thought it through far enough. That one's free. Just think about it. That's what's going on here in this promised land. There's still killing going on. And, and sometimes, was it murder or was it what we call manslaughter? So what this was was for people because what would happen is blood vengeance would happen. That is, you know, if you killed somebody that... You know, Mike's cousin, Mike's coming after you. <laughs> He's coming after you. And so the city of refuge was for people to go into there. The elders would then would be established the facts. If it was actually murder, they would be executed. Yes, capital punishment is biblical. God set it up. We didn't set it up. And they would be executed. But if they was manslaughter, if they had killed somebody and they didn't mean to, they were allowed to live in this city and have protection. Just two things here about the city. There is a picture of the gospel here in verse 6. Verse 6. So look at chapter 20, verse 6. And he, the person that has committed manslaughter, shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town into his own home, to the town to which he fled. Just imagine, here's, what it's, here's, here's the point. He had to stay there, but when the, when the priest died in that city, he could go home. It was Jesus, our high priest, who gave his life for us so that we could be free. Here's what I want you to get, though. If you missed this, you missed why I wanted us to get the sermon this way. This is a promised land. But this is not a perfect land. This is a promised land. There's nothing perfect about this land. Law and order is still needed. It still needed someone to determine, okay, is is this murder? Is this manslaughter? Sin and self is still present. Sin is still reigning. Notice there's also in chapter 21, cities for the Levites. So the Levites didn't have any land. So they had to have somewhere to live, somewhere to raise crops so that they could have a, have a living of some kind. And so remember, first, we've already said this, Christ was their inheritance. That's why they didn't have any land. And so listen, what was, what was happening, including in the cities of refuge, just why a priest was there, the Levites were scattered throughout the tribes. Remember the promise of Jacob's? That they would be scattered. That's exactly what they, they do. But there's a, there's a greater point here. The people still needed the priest. Why? 
Because they needed his spiritual instruction and spiritual correction and spiritual guidance. These are not glorified people. But people who still need the law and still need to be corrected. This, again, is a promised land. It's not a perfect land. So, you see, to experience rest, God's promises must be actively entered into. What, if, if you could ask one of the, these folks, tell me what re, this rest, this promised rest means to you. What do you think they would have said? Let me, let's look at Joshua 21. I think this gives us a little glimpse of it. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So this was rest. If you would have said to them, tell me what rest means to you, these people said, I I don't want to have to war anymore. I don't want to have to wonder if if the enemy's coming over the hill when I'm sitting in in, in my picnic table with my family eating. You see, the place of rest must be a place to thrive, not merely survive. Deuteronomy, speaking of this land, Deuteronomy 8, 7 says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and of springs, flowing out into valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. It is a place without war. It is a, a place to thrive. You see, only when you're at peace can you grow. You can't grow when your mind and emotions are tore up in chaos all the time. Spiritual growth, even physical growth is stunted. When chaos is the rule of the day. Have you, have you ever had one of those beanbag chairs? Big old beanbag chairs, you remember that? Maybe I guess they still make them. And... Uh, What's the secret of enjoying a being bad chair? You've got to sit back into it. I started to bring a chair up here. Uh, you can't sit on the edge, you can, of a being bad chair, you know, with, with your, knee, your feet still planted and your elbows on your hands and lean forward. You can do that in a being bad chair, but you're not going to enjoy it. The being bad chair only works if you give yourself into it. If you lay all of your weight into that thing, until you do that, you are not going to enjoy it. And you might as well get rid of it. Because it's serving no purpose. Rest is this way. 
A place to thrive, not merely survive. A place of peace, a place where joy can grow. This was the point. And listen, the place where God is central. That's why they moved it, moved the ark to Shiloh. God is central. You want to know what's wrong with the Transjordan tribes? They'd have rather had the land than had God. As long as my crops are growing, as long as my 401k is happy, I'm good. No, you're not. You're never going to rest. Rest is a place where God is central. What determines the degree of rest in your life? It is not an easy life. It's the place where God is treasured, where He is honored, and where He is obeyed. You focus on that, and you will have a life of rest. The ark is going to stay in Shiloh. Because the centrality of worship is critical to His people's rest. We are not here today because we couldn't have found another way to relax. Jesus is not sitting on the throne taking a nap. He is working and so is His people. Rest is a place where faith is leaned to, into and obedience is enjoyed. There is an enemy of rest and we see it all through this, these Nine chapters. The first enemy of rest is compromise. There again, I make the point. <laughs> this is a promised place. It's not a perfect place. They're, the lingering Canaanites is in the land. They're, in, they're still there. There's, there's, these little, there's these little pots, these hot spots of people who say, we're not going to leave. It's the enemy of rest. How do you deal with them? How do you deal with the Canaanites in the land? We got plenty of Canaanites in the land. We got plenty of Canaanites in the church. Uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Notice chapter 15 and verse 63. It says, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So you got Judah. Look at Judah. There's a lot of Judah. Ah, we can't, we can't drive them out. If you can't beat them, join them. Not only that, flip over a couple of pages to chapter 17, you'll see compromise in the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Verse 13, Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. The problem, God said to drive them out. And to coexist or to sinfully enslave them is sinful compromise. And compromise, brothers and sisters, leads to unrest every day and twice on the weekend. When we refuse to trust and obey, the cost will be our peace and the peace of those we love the most. It is not the only enemy. There's the enemy of compromise. There's also an enemy of complacency. Complacency. Complacency is the enemy of rest. We see it at the very beginning in chapter 13 with the Transjordan tribes. In verse 13 it says, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Mechathites, but Geshur and Mechath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. They just didn't 
feel like it. To the, remember the reluctant tribes in chapter 18? It's Joshua that had to say to them, how long will you put off going to take possession of the land? That's, what is that? It's complacency. Complacency, brothers and sisters, is an ungodly contentment that settles for less than God's best. Listen to this. This is C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's what we're seeing. That's the enemy of rest. But also, just complaint. There's complaining. And you know where it came from predominantly? And this would be in history, this would happen. Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 17, verse 16. The people of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, said, the hill country is not enough for us. Remember, God gets to choose so nobody can complain. (laughs) What are they doing? Complaining. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plains have chariots of iron, but those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have, you shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though the, they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. This was part of a larger conversation where they were sitting there going, you didn't give us enough land. We're a great people. We're too big for this land. You wonder, why didn't Joseph get an allotment? It was because Ephraim and Manasseh had been adopted by Jacob. You remember? He had them before him. He adopts them and he switches his hands. It should be, we should say Manasseh and Ephraim, but we say Ephraim and Manasseh because in God's sovereignty, again, He chooses the lesser and makes them the greater. And, and so they're saying now, we were blessed especially. We should get more land. And Joshua basically, in my Stephen translation, says, suck it up, buttercup. Hey, you got land up here on, it's got trees in it. Go clear that land. You can settle that land. He's like, no, no. They said, no, no. Those Canaanites, they're big. They got chariots and everything. We don't want to go over there. He said, yeah, but y'all were a great people. You're not getting anything else. Go take the land that I settled, the land that I gave you. Here's the point. There's complaining going on in this promised land. Turn with me to Hebrews 3, and we're going to stay here for the rest of our, our time. Hebrews 3 and 4, brothers and sisters, I don't think you can study this passage too much as a New Testament believer. It, you want to know what brought me rest in my life. It's understanding Hebrews 3 and 4, 4 especially. You see, here's the truth. Some people never experience rest. And you say, not. Well, look with me in chapter 3 in verse 16. 
speaking of that older generation, he says, for those who heard, and for who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom he did swear, they shall not enter his rest, but to those who were, but those who were disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so here's what I just want us to ask ourselves today. How much of my life is still unsettled? There's parts of this country that was not settled because they didn't drive out the Canaanites. They complained and they compromised. To, to have Christ as our all-sufficient Savior and yet to leave part of our life unsettled is like hiking up Crowder's Mountain and not getting to the top. There's a view at the top. But I'm telling you, because I tried to hike it right after I had getting over my heart attack, and I didn't make it, you know. It wasn't much to see halfway up. The Bible is a map that lays out what God has given us in Christ. It's his letter to us. It's a, it's a map, so to speak, of what God has given us. And sometimes we're just tired of fighting. I get it. Sometimes I want to see more victory than what I see. Those Canaanites in the land are stubborn. They're big. they got a foothold in my life. And so we just condescend. And to just say... This is just my lot in life. We've bought into a secular psychological culture that says you are what you struggle with. Just get used to it. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. God gives us freedom. And listen, if He can't give me freedom over depression, there's a problem with my gospel. But He can. How much of knowing God have I left on the table? Most of us, and I say us, this is true, get what we believe by listening to somebody else and not diving into the book for ourselves. Some of us have such problem with doctrine because we sit there, listen to our favorite preachers, talk bad about something, and we've never actually went to the book and said, Who is God? And what has He done? And what has He promised? If I see God doing it, what does this tell me about what I should do? Hosea says, press on. Press on to know the Lord. Not to be right. Not to get a degree. Not to win an argument. Not to do something big for God. We press on to know Him. And no other reason. F.B. Meyer says this, The soul is first possessed by Christ. And then it begins to possess Christ. We are apprehended by our divine captor. And then we come to apprehend him. Remember, it doesn't matter at the end of the day that you say you know the Lord. It matters at the end of the day that he knows you. A promised rest is still to be entered into. That's what Hebrews 4 is about. 
There's a promised place, but it's not a perfect place in Joshua. And so, take my word for it, a look in chapter 22. We get to the end of this book. The end of this book. And they're about to kill each other. I'm, not, I'm serious. Look at verse 11. Gad, if you look on your map, Gad and Reuben and, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they go back home across the Jordan, and they set up an altar. The other tribes say, why they got an altar built over there? They worshiping another god? You say, what's the big deal? Where was God's presence? Shiloh. What did they do? Built something somewhere else other than Shiloh. And so here's what happens. All these other guys on this side of the creek gather together, and they're about to go war on the guys on the other side of the creek. This is the promised land. <laughs> this is not it. For them or for us, a place of rest is still to come, brothers and sisters. But rest has been provided in this life. Do you remember the garden? The garden was where God finished His work and He brings man into a finished work. But God and man had to go back to work because man sinned. And so Christ came and He finished the work of redemption and He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He's sitting down. The work of redemption is finished and there's only one way to enter it. Look at verse 2 of Hebrews 4. For the good news came to us just... As to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Look at what verse 8 says. This is my whole point, the whole message. The promised land points to a perfect land, but this is not it. Verse 8 For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a day later on. This was not it. This pointed to it. This was not it. Much of our eschatology points to somewhere other than to Christ. It points to man. Joshua was unable to give him rest. Not because of his deficiency, but because this was not a perfect people. And this was not a perfect land. He points to something. A land with glorified people. A land with no sin. A land where the worship of God is central to all of life. That's what it's pointing to. There is a per- place, a perfect rest for those who trust in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Isn't that good news? I can still remember the first time I read that. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Praise the Lord. Christianity, the only religion in the world that says you cannot save yourself. That to give up is to win. To lean back is to gain it all. How do I know that I will inherit this place that he's talking about? You rest in the finished work of Christ now. That's how you know. This is not a prayer you pray. This is not a card you sign. This is not a work you do. You have to lean back in the chair of Jesus Christ with all of your weight and with all of your hope. You have to say, my joy and my rest and my salvation comes to here. Whether I live for five minutes or 50 years, it matters not. Only that I know Christ and that He knows me. 
We need to long for this place. That's his point to the, author, to the to people that are reading in Hebrews. That's his point. Look at verse 11. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and of the spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. The time to enter that rest is today. It's today. Today is the day of salvation. We don't have any promise of tomorrow. You can't wait till you get on your deathbed and say, I'll get it right then. The way we know we'll have it then is we have it now. And if you don't have it now, you have no promise that you will have it then. Do you long for it? Brothers and sisters, we don't need to keep arguing about all the what-ifs of our end times at the end. What we should all be longing for is a place with no sin, no sorrow. Can I show you that place as we close today? Revelation 21. Let's turn and read it together. And I, I don't know of any passage that can set us up to worship the Lord than this one. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just because sometimes this translation really speaks to me and maybe it will you. Revelation 21, verse 1. Listen, this is the perfect place. Listen, this is the promised consummation of the kingdom. This is the end of our story and beginning of the next story. Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. And He will live with them. And they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said, also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will freely give him from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is what we long for. So, brothers and sisters, I call you to celebrate this promise today. This is one of the things that we remember as we come to the tables that Christ has so provided for us. It is so finished. It is so settled that we are already raised up and seated with Him in heavenly places right now. And so let's worship. And then, brothers and sisters, let us go out and settle the land. This is the land He has given us. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we thank You for Your gospel and Your promises and Your word. 
We thank you that your word comforts us no matter what we are going through, no matter what questions we have today, no matter how big those Canaanites look, your power and your promises are enough. And so I pray that you would encourage your people. Fill us in our mind and our wills and our emotions with the very Spirit of God that we may go out and settle the land that you have given us, fight the enemy that you have put before us, not in our strength, but in the name of the only one that's given among men by which we can be saved and by which we have an authority that comes from God to take the land. And so, Lord, now we come as your people to remember to remember first that we can come to the cross and ask for forgiveness, whether we have never asked for it before or whether we've asked for it a million times before, we can come to you right now, repent of our sins and be forgiven. And this we do so that we may come to the tables in a worthy manner, remembering our Savior, His body and His blood and His promises and His family. These things we remember. And then, Lord, you make sure before we leave that we have our armor on because we do not go out to wrestle against flesh and blood. We hold fast to you, God. Be worshipped today among your people. Be treasured, honored, and enjoyed. In the name of Jesus, amen.